We've got a number of scriptures that we'll consider this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 11 will be our key text. We'll get there eventually, but we've got to set the stage as we do. We sang earlier, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And for some of us, we sang that song and we know it because we've been singing it since we were a kid and it has meaning to us. Others of us, we sang it because it was on the screen and maybe it was the first time we heard it and we're thinking, hmm, do I love Jesus? I mean, I know you can't look him in the eyes, you can't hold his hand, you can't have a face-to-face relationship with Jesus, or can you? Is it that other people in your life are like Jesus to you or because they have sought to empty themselves of self and be full of Jesus that they must decrease and he must increase that when you are with them, you feel the presence of Jesus. You know his love, you know his care, you know his compassion because you know it through that other person. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible is filled with Jesus' love for us and our need, our command to love one another. But it was interesting to me when I set out to study on this sermon, the second in our series on Belong, about the question of should we love Jesus or how should we love Jesus, that frankly there's not as many commands in the New Testament where it speaks specifically about Jesus as I would have expected. It doesn't say thou shalt love Jesus 20 times in the New Testament. It's all through there but it doesn't say it specifically. So we'll survey a few New Testament scriptures and then we'll land on what I would say is the seminal Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 11 in which God commands his people to love him. So our sermon series here, Belong, has a simple idea. It's that Jesus loves me is what we considered last week. It's the one thing the Bible emphasizes more than us loving God and people is that God loves us. He loves us first and He loves us most. And God isn't in heaven plucking a daisy saying, I love you when you obey, I love you not when you sin. That's not God's love at all. He cannot not love you. Remember Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own lust to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. And this week, we'll consider the idea of loving Jesus in response. Next week, we'll get to loving others. That sometimes is a challenge, but we need to consider it. And finally, in two weeks, we'll come to obeying Jesus, which brings us to our scripture memory verse of the month which ties love and obedience together, uh, as does our Deuteronomy 11 passage that will be our key passage a little bit later here. But let's say this together. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. John 14, 21. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you today and we pray a a third time in this service led by me, but I know we can all be praying where we sit and as we are. We come now as we open your word and pray that on this question of loving you and loving your son Jesus, that you'd speak clearly to us. 
that whether it's one of these points I've written down or whether a scripture that I've called out or most certainly something by your Holy Spirit you speak to each and every one of us that we know and we recognize a new truth and we respond to it. So God, speak to us now, we ask. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So let's look at a few of these New Testament passages. Even though I told you we're going to land and spend some time on Deuteronomy chapter 11, would you turn with me to John 21? John 21 is the last chapter and the last gospel, not just in the order Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the last gospel written. Remember, the gospel of John was written uh, much later than the other gospels. It was written about 90. Jesus may have been passed away uh, or gone to heaven, excuse me, for almost 60 years at that time. And John, now a senior saint, is looking back and writing this gospel, and he's writing it in a different sort of way because of the climate at the time. And notice what John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17 says. It said, When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Your point on your outline here is that loving Jesus is a challenge. Loving Jesus is challenging. Um, This interaction in our English translations loses a little bit. If you noted my reading of my NIV, the 1984 version, it says in verse 15 and verse 16, do you truly love me? And in verse 17, it just says, do you love me? Where Jesus is talking, Simon Simon Peter, Peter, um, one of his chief disciples, and this is just before Jesus is going to ascend into heaven and be no more on earth. And he's finding out about Peter's commitment to him. And when he says in verse 15, do you truly love me? That's actually using the Greek word agape. Remember, agape is the word we translate as otherish. It's God-powered. It's supernatural. You can't do it on your own. It's other-focused and it's self-sacrificing. It's the opposite of selfish. Jesus is saying, do you agape me? Peter interestingly responds, Not with the word agape, but another familiar New Testament word for love, phileo. That's brotherly love. Yes, Lord, I phileo you. Uh, Not quite that way in Greek, but you know what I mean, right? Again, Jesus asked him, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter again says, Lord, I phileo you. Now, we can be critical of Peter here and say, why didn't Peter just get it? Jesus is asking him a specific question. Do you love me in an otherish, supernatural sort of way? And the best Peter can muster is, I love you like a brother, Jesus. Come on, man. Lest we be critical of Peter, let's consider our point. Loving Jesus is challenging. And how have I let Jesus down? I feel like... I don't think I'm reading too much into this, that 
Jesus asked, do you agape me twice? Peter couldn't answer it twice with agape. He changed the word to love to phileo. And so then Jesus asked a third time, but he uses that word. Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. I already told you twice. But do you feel like he let God or Jesus down? Like he should have used the same word. He should have been able to say, yes, Jesus, I agape, I have otherish, supernatural, God-powered love for you just like you have for me. Lest we're critical of Peter, maybe we should applaud Peter. Maybe we should say, Peter, thank you for being honest, that you weren't to the point that you could say with wholehearted commitment that you agape Jesus back. That you're not there yet. Rather than lying to the Son of God, your Savior, you were honest with Him. But it feels like He let Jesus down a little bit, right? My point is for us to consider that loving Jesus is challenging. And there are times when our Lord will ask us to do things that we're like, Lord, I can't do that. I can't commit, I can't say that the way that you want me to say that. I'm not sure I have that faith. I'm not sure I have that courage. Of course, the devil can get in the middle of this and try to bring us down. That's when we need to remember God's forgiveness. That if we ask, He's faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. That's when we need to remember God's grace. That God is gracious to us no matter what, no matter where, and He'll forgive us. Loving Jesus is challenging. We're asked to do it. Jesus asked Peter to do it. He asked us as all disciples to do it as well. Let's move on to Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. So if you turn to the very back of your Bibles, to the concordance, maybe to the maps, and come back just to the very last book of the Bible in Revelation. Revelation 2 and 3 are these letters to the churches, these seven churches of Revelation. And the first of those letters is to the angel in the church in Ephesus. Revelation is a vision that John had of what was coming, but also what was happening. And notice what it says in Revelation 2, 4. After Jesus has commended the church at Ephesus, he says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Your point on your outline is that loving Jesus is essential. It's assumed that a believer in Jesus will love Jesus. That because He has loved us, because He has forgiven us, because He has saved us, because He gives us abundant life, because He gives us eternal life, that we will respond by loving Him. And that love implies our obedience. That love implies that we're Christ's followers. That love implies we're committed to Him like He's committed to us. It is an essential ingredient to be a follower of Jesus. That He would be our first love beyond anything or anyone in this life that we might love. I ask a question there in a strong way. When have I abandoned Jesus? Why do I use the word abandon? Well, that word that Jesus uses, forsaken. Forsaken, abandoned are synonymous words. There's some overlap to them, a little shades of different meaning. But you know what it means to be abandoned, right? When somebody leaves you, when you're gone, when you're alone, they were with you, but something happens and 
either they get mad at you or they forget about you. Do you remember a time when you were a kid and you got lost or separated from your family? And that feeling of panic you have? I told a story about that a few weeks ago. I won't tell it again. It gives me the willies every time I think about it. But my family didn't mean to leave me, but they left me. They thought I was with them, and I felt abandoned, and I was freaking out, man, because I thought, I'm going to die here. Well, I certainly wasn't going to die, but that's how you feel, right? What about when we've abandoned Jesus? We were walking with him, we were following him, and things were fine in our relationship with Jesus, seemingly, but then Jesus goes somewhere we're not sure we want to go yet. We're like, okay, Lord, hey, man, you do good over there, I'm just going to stay right here. Or we say, okay, Lord, you do good over there, and I am running the other way. We do it all the time. Jesus Love is essential, yet we give up, yet we go the other way. Let's look at a third New Testament scripture. That's in Matthew chapter 22. So back to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And you might have assumed I was going to land on this one and where it takes us to. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, 38, 39. A Pharisee, a teacher of the law, was trying to trap Jesus, if you will. And he says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 36, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, loving God with everything you have and everything you are is the greatest thing that you can do. And your point there that I used to summarize it is that loving Jesus is required. It's a requirement of us. If you didn't get that quite from the fact that it's challenging or that it's essential, we'll add a different shade there, that it's required of us. It's assumed that as a follower of Jesus, as somebody who's been saved by Him, that you will love God. And that you'll love him with everything you've got. Um, That's a pretty high expectation, though, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I get a little worried about that one. Loving Jesus with all we've got is the bar we're aiming for. But how in the world do we do that? Well, that, too, is supernatural. It's otherish. It's something you can't do on your own. It's something you have to ask God to help you to do. When you fail at it, when the evil one comes and he tempts you with guilt and shame and tries to separate you in your relationship with Jesus, you need to remind him you are forgiven. You need to remind him of grace. You need to remind him of God's love for you. And you need to ask God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that is to enable you to love Jesus in that supernatural, agape sort of way, beyond the phileo of brotherly love of, yeah, man, I'm with you, Jesus, to the agape, I'm following you wherever you call me to go, Jesus. The question for application there is, how wholehearted am I with Jesus? If I were to ask you, do you love Jesus, you'd probably say, yeah, I love Jesus. That's why I'm here, right? I mean, yeah. But how fully committed are you? 
depends on the moment. Right now, when I'm sitting here in church and everything seems okay, I'm committed. Tomorrow, when I go to work and an avalanche of stuff comes to my desk and an angry customer calls me, it's a little harder to be committed. When my health is challenged, a little harder to be committed. Maybe, or maybe that's the time you turn. But God calls us to love Him with everything we've got, to set aside who we are, and to ask Jesus to come in us and fill us with the ability to love Him like nothing doing. Interestingly enough, in this passage of Scripture, Matthew 22, when this Pharisee is asking Jesus this, he's trying to trick him, I told you. Because at that point in time, there were over 600 positive and negative commands that the Pharisees had written. They're all built on the Ten Commandments and all built on the things that are in the Bible that we have. But all these other things that are not in the Bible that Jewish people followed in Jesus' day. And so out of those 600 plus commands, he's trying to trick Jesus. Which one are you going to guess? Because if you guess, you know, 599 to 1, you lost. I won. But Jesus says the one that is the one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But where does that come from? Well, that's back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So turn back there with me. So back to the beginning of your Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The fifth book of your Bible. Deuteronomy is a sermon. Moses is preaching to the Israelite people. He has led them out of Egypt and has led them uh, on the way to the promised land. Yet, because of their rebellion, even along the way, they have to take some laps around the Sinai Peninsula to the whole disobedient generation dies out. And now they're on the threshold on the east side of the Jordan River, about to cross over to the promised land on the west side between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And Moses is preaching them a sermon. And in this sermon, he's recounting for them all the things that God has done for them and their relationship with Him and how it is special and unique and set aside. And then notice in chapter 5, he's recounted the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 5, verse 32, he says, Be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside from the left or the right. Walk in these ways. And then comes chapter 6, Deuteronomy 6. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. This sounds good. Obey obey these things. God's going to bless you. You got two so that's in there. You got to love it, right? Verse 3. Hear, O Israel, and be careful that it may go well with you. You've got a third so that. You've got to love this, right? That you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of our fathers, promised you. And then you get verse 4. This passage of Scripture is called the Shema, and even those of us who don't speak Hebrew may know this one, because it's a prayer we hear Jewish people pray even today. And Shema is the... Uh, Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then notice what it says. Jesus quoted it. We just looked at it a few moments ago. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
That's what Jesus was quoting, Deuteronomy 6, 5. And notice verse 6. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children, verse 7. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. But what is it you're supposed to do? Love God with everything you've got. It's assumed that believers in Jesus are going to love Jesus because he loves us. But let's take a further, deeper look into how that works. And that's where we turn the page to Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11 on your outline there, and you've got a number of points around Deuteronomy 11 as we walk through it point by point. As Moses then comes back to what he's introduced in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he explains in depth this relationship of love with God. What's happened in the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy is Moses is recounting history, and he's preaching this sermon, and Deuteronomy chapter 11 is like his concluding point to the sermon. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, the last verses, verse 26 through 32, is the summary of his sermon. And so here we have this summary of this love relationship that God has with his people. And I know we're talking about loving Jesus, but loving Jesus and loving God are one and the same. And so we have this that Jesus, when he said, love God with everything you've got in Matthew 22, is referring back to these things from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. The first point there under Deuteronomy 11 on your outline is that loving God means I keep his word. Loving God means I keep his word. I keep his word. Verse 1 and 2, we'll read in a moment, is common when Moses has a parenthetical kind of statement in his sermon that he goes back to urging the people to love God. And so he introduces a parenthesis by saying, love God. He closes a parenthesis by saying, here are the blessings of the cursings. Now that I just told you that, if you go back and read the book of Deuteronomy, he reads story, 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 and then you turn told us a hint. Yeah, I just did. So when you read the book of Deuteronomy, read story, 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 and then you got love God, and then he'll explain something, then he'll say, here are the blessings or cursings when you love God or don't love God, and then he goes back to telling the story. That's what Moses does. That's just his form, his style, right? So loving God means I keep his word, and let's read what he says there in verse 1. It says, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Now, just in case you didn't get it, he uses these synonyms, requirements, decrees, laws, and commands always. I summarize it by saying, keep his word. Do what the Bible says. Live what you know you're supposed to do based on the Bible. Don't worry about what you don't know, just do what you do know. Obey God. You demonstrate your love to God by your obedience to Him. Loving God means keeping His commandments. Let's look at verse 13, also in Deuteronomy 11. He says, So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then he says then, and he's going to explain that in a minute. It's assumed that we will faithfully obey. And when we faithfully obey, God is going to bless us. So there we have it again. Loving God means keeping His Word. Further down in the passage of Scripture, verse 22, 
If you carefully observe, that means keep, not just go, oh, that looks like a command of God. That means do the command of God, observe by doing. That's what it means, right? If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and to hold fast to Him, then you get another conditional statement like verse 13, 14, you hear in verse 22, 23. Loving God means I keep His word. The question you and I need to ask ourselves is, how well am I keeping God's word? In my life right now, how well do I keep God's word? Well, again, it may depend on the moment, huh? It may depend on how I feel. It may depend on my circumstances. We know we're supposed to love Jesus. We know we're supposed to obey the Bible. But it's not always easy, is it? In real life. Going on in our passage of Scripture, you get your second point there about Deuteronomy 11. That loving God means I remember His works. Loving God means I remember His works. I preached a series of sermons out of Deuteronomy years ago. And we talked about this theology of remembrance. Where Moses reminds God's people, here's what God has done for you. Here's your relationship with God, and you see it right here. In the midst of this sermon where he's already reminding them of things, he's reminding them of things he's reminding them of, right? Verse 2, remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. His majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arms. So the things that happened back in Egypt and the things that led them to be freed. Verse 3, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his whole country, what he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they pursue, were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. So in just a few verses here, he's summarizing the whole Exodus narrative, at least the part involving Egypt till they got free from the Egyptian pursuers and we're crossing over, miraculously, the dry Red Sea. Let's go on in this passage of Scripture in verse 6 and 7. Uh, verse 5, excuse me. It was not your children who saw what you did in the desert until you arrived at this place and saw what he did to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up with their households and their tents and everything that belonged to them. Um, you need to go back and read that one. Look at your footnote. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord has done. God says, if you love me, you're going to remember what I did in your life. Now, he's going to add the next part in a moment about teaching others. But he says, remember what I've done. I don't know about you. If you don't have a journal, I'd get one. And write down the things that God teaches you. Write down the prayers that God answers for you. Keep a record of those things. So when you are tempted, when times are hard, you can go back in your very own life and see, here's how God has been faithful to me. Here's how God has blessed me. And that is what Moses is telling God's people to do then. Remember God's work. 
to thank Him, to recall, to memorialize, to keep your relationship strong with Him. So we're supposed to love God, supposed to keep His Word, supposed to remember Him. And the third thing we're supposed to do, that's your third point under Deuteronomy 11, is loving God means I enjoy His blessings. Loving God means I enjoy His blessings. Verse 8 and following. Observe, therefore, all the commands I'm giving you today, so that you may have strength to go in and take over the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give them and the descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. Somebody said, it sounds like a sticky place. If it had milk and honey, I don't know why you'd want to go there, but it's an image, a euphemism. In other words, the land produces good things from animals and crops. Verse 10, the land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. What is he talking about there? It didn't rain in Egypt Egypt was a desert. The water in Egypt comes from the Ethiopian highlands where it does rain and there is snow on times and it comes down through the Nile River and then it floods into the areas and they use canals uh, in order to water their crops. If you look at Egypt, you see this fertile sector along, like a satellite image, along the Nile River. Everything else is brown, right? And they would use a pump that they worked with their foot almost like a water wheel to move the water from one place to another. And that's what he's talking about. So he's giving them this image that they know since they lived in Egypt and they worked for the Egyptians that here's how water came to Egypt. Now look at the contrast, verse 11. But the land you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. Ah, you see the contrast? So you had to make the water get where you wanted to by foot after it flooded and you got in this holding tank and you pump it from here to here to water your crops. But what he's saying is in Israel, the place you're coming, God waters the land. God's going to bless you. God's going to provide for you. You're not going to have to work the same way you did before. Look at verse 12. It is a land that the Lord your God cares for. In other words, he's looking after it. That image of God providing for it. The eyes of the Lord, your God, are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. God makes it rain. God provides for the land and God is providing the land for you. Well, our point here is enjoying God's blessings. Yes, they're still going to have to work the crops, but they're not going to have to work as hard and they're not going to have to work in the same way. Remember, this is a Land flowing with milk and honey. Let's go on to the second half of this portion, verses 13 through 15. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Loving God means I enjoy His blessings. Because I love Him, He loves me, and He provides for me, and He blesses me in ways that I need, in ways that I can enjoy. I tell you what, I have an image of this in my mind. And that image is two weeks ago on Saturday, 
and the surprise party my wife threw for me for my birthday, and 80-something of you walking through my living room. And so much of that time, I sat in my chair in the side of my living room, and I just looked at people loving each other, eating cake, drinking punch, or whatever else, smiling and laughing, and I thought, I am blessed. I am blessed. And then all of you to be in my life and send me notes and send me cards and give me encouragement and tease me about being old, whatever. I'm blessed, right? I'm blessed. And I can't think of any better example of this, that because of God's love for us, He blesses us. Because of your love for me, you bless me. I mean, how cool is that, that we have this relationship where we can love each other and we can do simple things like share a cake together and give a card and share some pleasant words and recognize the relationship we have with one another. Because God loves us, He's going to bless us, and that goes more than cake and a card. That goes for the provision of everything in our lives. We're supposed to keep His Word. We're supposed to remember His Word. We're going to be blessed when we obey His Word. Your fourth point from Deuteronomy chapter 11 is that loving God means I teach His ways. Loving God means I teach His ways. He says, be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and He will shut the heavens so they'll produce no rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will perish for uh, the good land the Lord is giving you. Then He goes back to what we heard in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about your children. And about remembering, fix these words of mine in your hearts and your minds. Tie them on your symbols and your heads. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. If that sounds familiar, he's exactly quoting the thing he already wrote it, right? Wrote it, written, wrote. Okay. Verse 20. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. What a beautiful way to say, when you obey and you teach your children to obey, God's going to bless you beyond anything you can imagine. As many as the days of the heavens are above the earth. You can't count it. God's blessings to you are going to be innumerable. And loving God means I teach His ways. That I don't just keep it to myself. So the question is, who are you teaching? How are you teaching? How actively are you teaching them? If you have a parent, you're teaching your children. You might think, well, I'm really not teaching them to love God. Yeah, you are by the way you live. I think of the way I don't do that as well as I should. You probably can think of it as well. Maybe you don't have children at home anymore. Maybe you're not yet a parent. But you're still teaching people to love God by the way that you love Him and you serve Him. Everybody who knows you and knows you're a follower of Jesus looks at your life and says, hmm, so this is what it means to follow Jesus? This is what it means to love God? Have we considered the fact that we are surrounded by a world of witnesses and they're watching us and whether we know it or not, we're teaching His ways. Let's move on to your fifth and final point. Then we've got a question at the end, and that one is that loving God means I welcome His care. Loving God means I welcome His care. 
Verse 22 through 25. If you carefully observe all the commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold Him fast, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispose of nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea. No man will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as He promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. Loving God means I welcome His care. That is saying there's going to be a military conquest you're going to be a part of, but God's going to do for you things you can't do on your own because you're not a nation big enough and you're not a nation strong enough. God's going to take care of you. We need to remember that in our lives when we look at the obstacles in our lives whether that's relationships, whether that's health, whether that's bills, whether that's anxiety or depression or fear. And we need to say, God is for me. God loves me. And God is going to drive out all these enemies and conquer for me because He loves me. And I'm seeking to love and follow Him. Ceremony and professions and religion mean nothing if it's not personal. Though you are here this morning, it is wonderful. But what would be better is if you also walk with Jesus every other morning of the week and 24-7, 365, every other day of the year. That you have a personal and intimate relationship with Him. That loving God means you welcome His care. We've got a final point to apply. And it's in these last verses that I already told you. Moses switches to a summary of blessing and cursing. And that question on your outline is, what does loving God require of me? What does loving God require of me? Well, Moses summarizes it here for the Israelites in verse 26 through 32, and it'll serve as our conclusion today. He says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a cursing. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn away from the way I commanded you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you entered to possess and you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses, And you know these mountains are across the Jordan west of the road toward the setting sun near the great trees of Morah in the territory of the Canaanites living in the Arabah in the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God has given you when you've taken it over and are living there and laws I'm setting before you today. What does God require of me? To obey everything He tells me. To demonstrate my love to Him by obedience. Last week we concluded by considering the two persons that Jesus encountered. The Pharisee was sinful but self-righteous. The woman was sinful but broken. And Jesus loved them both. As I said, then Jesus loves you no matter what. And I asked, of course, how have we responded to Jesus and his love? Today, I'd say to you, if that's how God loves you, 
How do you love him in return? Let's pray. God, our Father, we're thankful for your love for us. That you provide everything of our lives. And that you ask us to love you in response. So, Father, I would pray that we'd be so moved in consideration of your love that we would not, that we could not help but avoid obeying you and loving you as well. So, Father, move in our hearts that we would know and we would obey. If there's somebody here today that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that they would do that today. There's one of us that has, but has wandered away and let sin get in the way, that we would confess that today. Whatever we need to do, we'd obey. In the name of Jesus, amen.